Hello, and thank you for joining us on Search for Truth. This is your Bible teaching program with Brian Johnston. It's a privilege to enjoy your company, and thank you for your time. Today, Brian brings us the second talk in this eight-part series, and Brian is seeing how the New Testament writers were speaking the truth in love as Scripture itself describes it, and he continues by looking into more Scriptures in order to enrich our relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're following the talks over the next few weeks, I feel sure you'll enjoy them. But this time, Brian takes us into an awareness of how the Scriptures teach that we are built upon our Lord Jesus, and we can reach a deeper understanding of our close relationship with him. So, now to Brian. Thanks, John. It would surely tell us a lot about a person if we knew what their hopes were, where they'd invested their wealth, and into which projects they were channelling their energies and power. Well, we don't need to wonder about God. In the letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, he shares these things with us. Paul writes to those who've known conversion, and he says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is Ephesians chapter 2. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole or every building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul had prayed in the first chapter that the believers in the church of God at Ephesus would know about God's hope, his treasured possession and his power. It's like the opening prayer of a preacher before delivering his message, in which he aims to explain what these things are. Paul does this in chapter 2, explaining exactly what's meant by these things mentioned in chapter 1. But first, he begins by reminding them of their conversion. Spiritually, they'd been dead in sins, as we all are, until we receive Christ as personal Saviour. That act of faith had brought them life, and as joined with their Saviour by faith, they'd been raised and seated with Christ above. This is a spiritual reality we do well to stop and absorb, at least for one practical reason. By stating this, God is affirming that the job is done. The believer on Christ 
cannot fail to gain heaven, not if he or she is already raised and seated there. I'm reminded, by way of illustration, of the time in sport when the referee cancelled the goal scored by Zico, the Brazilian, because it came a split second after the final whistle of the soccer game against Sweden in the 1978 World Cup. Like the goal the Brazilian scored, the sins we daily commit now cannot change the result, because when we believed in the Lord Jesus, it was as if the whistle blew and our salvation was forever finalised. It's right to emphasise that it's faith alone that saves us, and Paul in his letter does that here, very plainly. But faith must be real rather than simply professed. We may learn about flying in terms of the laws of science. We may see a demonstration of it and accept that it works, but it's another thing to step on board a plane absolutely trusting it's going to get us off the ground. But we might add that real saving faith is never alone, even if it is faith alone that saves us from God's eternal wrath and judgment in the lake of fire. We often like to complain about things not being fair, but what's fair is that we all deserve the lake of fire, which means that we can only be saved by God's undeserved favour. That's what's meant here by being saved by God's grace. This same passage of God's word goes on to show there are things that should attend a faith that's real. There are specific works God has prepared for each of us to engage in. Good works are important, but let's not put the plough before the ox. Salvation must come first. We'll talk about some accompanying good works in a moment. But notice this section is addressed to all to those both far and near, that is, to Gentile as well as Jew. There's no second class. God's ultimate purpose is not our salvation, but rather that we should be something for him, for the praise of the glory of his grace. Jews and Gentiles, together, can now be something for God, even while here on earth. They are fellow members of the church, which is Christ's body, which when viewed in its eternal perspective, or in the heavenly realm, is complete and perfect. But we're focusing, in Ephesians chapter 2, on its members who are on the earth, specifically those to whom Paul writes in the Church of God at Ephesus, members on earth who are struggling to grasp what God intends them to become for him now, and Paul prays that they'll grasp it. Paul tells them they're no longer separate from Christ, nor excluded anymore from the promises, nor strangers to either hope or God. Far from it, they've actually been brought, he says, into the household of God. That word can mean either family or house. We must in every case seek out the correct meaning from the immediate context. Here, since there's talk about building and about a foundation and a cornerstone, Paul has to be referring to the house rather than the family of God in this instance. This is a topic of Bible-wide significance and perfectly fits the flow of thought here as Paul thinks about saved men and women being built up in the apostles' teaching to be something for God by offering service to God in an organised and structured way, being a development upon the exclusively Jewish arrangements of the Old Testament. In other words, Paul, at the end of Ephesians chapter 2, 
begins to elaborate on what God has in mind as the present goal of our conversion experience, which is that we should become a house or temple for God on the earth. Paul's no longer describing the universal church in ultimate terms, but he's now taking a temporal view of its representation as a spiritual structure on earth, which believers, like those in the Church of God in Ephesus, were part of. Nowhere, in fact, does Paul ever describe the entire church of the body as a temple. Quite the opposite. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that God's temple is capable of being destroyed, a fate which can never befall the body of Christ. Having said that, it's curious how so many commentators simply assume Paul has nothing other than the ultimate view of the church of the body in his sights here, even to the point that it impacts on the very translation of verse 21. You see, should it read, all the building grows into a holy temple, or should it say, every building grows into a holy temple? The point at dispute is the word, the. Was it properly there or not originally? More than half of the ancient manuscripts witnessed to its absence. And that being the case, respected Greek language authorities say the most accurate meaning here is every building. That's every building growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So in turn, this means we're talking about a built-up structure on earth which is spoken about as having a foundation and a cornerstone and is overall comprised of individual buildings, but all together forming a single temple. Something like how a campus university might today overall consist of different faculty buildings in the one overall complex. As I was writing this, I was passing through Dubai Airport, a huge sprawling complex. Here the terminals are some distance from each other, such that it can be a 30-minute slow bus ride between them, sufficient to cause you at times to miss your connecting flight. But let's return to the point. Many buildings making up one airport complex. That can only be a helpful analogy, of course, for within Christianity, we know physical structures have no importance. They've been replaced. And let's remind ourselves with what? The local church of God at Corinth was in every way exactly like the local church of God at Ephesus, to which Paul was currently writing. How did Paul describe that local church, the one at Corinth? He described those who formed it by saying, You are God's building. And then says to them later in chapter 9, You are, in character, body of Christ. In other words, each local fellowship of faithful disciples, carefully following the apostles' teaching, took its character from the church, the body. But together with all the other local fellowships, they were a spiritual temple or house on earth. And that was the New Testament answer to the Jerusalem temple after the cross. So the temple of God and the body of Christ are different, but there's a clear connection between them because the temple on earth, as we've seen, derives its character from the body. Obedient believers, like those to whom Paul was writing, visibly express on earth the wonderful reality of Christ's church. The complete body is not on earth, but only something that can represent it. The united community of New Testament churches of God was the earthly expression of the essential body unity. 
Sadly, this is not expressed when Christendom is divided by differences. So to all believers today, as those enlightened at the time of their salvation, Paul's prayer here applies. Remember, he's praying that we come to experience more of God personally, and he specifies how that can happen. It's when we travel to the end of this chapter with Paul and see how we too are invited to be included in belonging to this temple made up of people, people whom God's delighted to view today as his inheritance, in the same way as he once regarded Israel as being that. This is the hope God wants to realise now by calling us through the gospel, and it's surely a major part of the good works he's prepared for us to do before the world began even to exist. So I hope you enjoyed Brian's talk today and if it's raised any comments or questions for Brian, uh, do get in touch. I'll be giving you the contact details in a moment. There's also a transcript book for all the talks in this series and it's available free on request by asking for the title Our Relationship with Jesus Christ. You can order the book by email or by post and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wooden Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. I'm sorry, but that's almost the end of our programme today. But once again, many thanks for the privilege of your company. And I'd like you to join us again next week, if you can, when Brian will be seeing how the scriptures can teach us more about our relationship with Christ. Until then, it's very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. So bye for now, and may God richly bless you.